Welcome to the Timber and Technology Podcast, a meeting point for forestry, trade, and innovation. Interviewing the innovators and industry leaders. Hosted by Amir Rashad. Hello and welcome back to the Timber and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Amir Rashad. And in this episode, I speak to Martin Hermanson and Russ Taylor, two leading figures from the Russian and North American forestry industries. A true meeting of East meets West, giving us a global industry perspective. In this episode, we discuss if the lumber price increase is here to stay or just a temporary trend and if a good market will stay for this year and next. During our in-depth one-hour interview, we go into the positive supply chain shock following COVID-19 on the housing and furniture markets, how the US lumber demand is growing at double the speed of production, and the main factors behind that, how production in British Columbia fell by 1.5 million cubic meters per month in 2019, and how that now needs to be replaced. But we also discuss the log export ban from Russia, which will take effect on 1st of January next year, and how it will reduce exports to China by 5 million cubic meters. And finally, how a poor paper and newsprint markets creates problem to sell rust products from harvesting and sawmilling in Scandinavia, and why it makes increasing lumber production so much harder. Stay tuned and buckle up. Russ, Martin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Amir. And thank you as well. So for those who might not know who you are, what is your background and how long have you been in the industry? Well, I'll start. This is uh, Russ Taylor. Um, my background is I'm, a, I'm trained as a forester. I've worked as a, in sawmills as a sales manager and doing custom cutting in the 80s. And for the last 30 years, I've been in the uh, global wood products consulting business, uh, analyzing uh, markets, forecasting, uh, doing all kinds of uh, work for companies in terms of what they require. I uh, started my consulting business uh, with International Wood Markets Group, which I ran for uh, about 28 years. And currently I've started my own business, uh, Russ Taylor Global, which is a continuation of all of the above. That's my short introduction. Yeah, this is Martin. I'm the owner of a mill in Russia, actually, even if I'm born in Sweden. This uh, mill is called uh, Novinisesk Sawmill. It's uh, in the Krasnarsk uh, region in Lesosibirsk, and it's one of the three uh, biggest uh, sawmills in uh, Russian Siberia, producing mainly uh, pine, uh, actually, for global markets. About 350, 400,000 cubic meters. Uh, per year, or say 8,000 containers, in case you are on the in the US uh, part of the world. Very interesting. So for today's podcast, we have a diverse set of speakers from both the East and the West that uh, have an understanding of how the global timber industry is performing, which leads me to my next question. How do you see that the global timber market is performing today? How did we get here? And is this the new normal? Martin? Yeah, now we are probably in the most interesting times that we have seen. And I told friends and others that I think we actually experienced what you can call an external shock, being that people will change their living patterns. People who in the past never worked in distance, uh, they will now stay at home Monday, Friday, they go to the office in the middle of the week, uh, invest some more money into improving their housing uh, outside the city in particular, rather than traveling because the pandemia in my view will be here for yeah half a year, one year or even two years. 
So I think uh, that's how we are and that uh, demand uh, will be higher in cubic meters, uh, both for solid wood furniture uh, as well as for uh, lumber. Okay, and I'll, I'll continue then. This is Russ. And uh, well, my view is, is, is that this is a, a supply chain imbalance where we, we had stock, we had uh, strong demand uh, after the pandemic hit, we had mills curtailed. Uh, and then as they started back up, demand, they couldn't match the, the demand. And so prices have taken off, especially in the US market. But I just like to comment that, you know, in my career, I've I've seen three or four reports that always indicate the world is running out of wood and uh, prices are going to go through the roof forever and supply and demand always balance eventually. And in this case, they will, they will balance as well, but I think it's going to take a couple of years before we actually get back to kind of more normalized conditions because this uh, pandemic is a real global supply shock to everybody. But about that imbalance, Ross, how is the supply situation today overall compared to let's say two years ago? Well, I think the, the supply uh, actually, at least looking at North America is, is pretty much the same uh, you know, when you look at it on an annualized basis, but it's the demand that's up. And uh, the demand like in 2020 US demand was up something like 6%, you know, which is, uh, which is huge, just a lot of volume. And, uh, you know, with the supply lagging the whole time throughout the year. So it's the imbalance. And I think it's still gonna take all of next year, all of this year, I mean, to, to in North America to get some sort of balance uh, out, but uh, it, it's sort of hard to say, but long-term uh, it will eventually come back into a, a global supply and demand balance, but prices will be higher going forward because every every time you have a shock like this, prices always go to a new floor level. And uh, that's something I think we'll see. And Russ, there's a question for me then. I mean, we've seen that the Canadian mills have cut production a lot. We also know that there are a lot of new mills in the US uh, South. Uh, uh, how many percent, in your view, are kind of being compensated? I read somewhere that in two years, the the production in Canada has fallen by even one and a half million cubic meters per month, uh, in, if you compare with two years ago. And uh, for reference, in case you speak from Russia, it's actually about as much as Russia or, say, Sweden produces in uh, dry lumber. Is that kind of being caught up uh, in production increases in, in the U.S.? or only partly, and that's why uh, goods are now being heading over from from Europe uh, to the U.S. As we can see at the end of the year yeah. 2020. Yeah. Yes, good good question, Martin. Well, certainly the Canadian well BC is where the the production drops have occurred because of the mountain pine beetle. You know, 40 sawmills have closed since 2005, and we still have a couple more to go. So, so BC is getting close to the bottom of its uh, of its uh, production declines. And uh, whereas the rest of Canada has seen slight increases in production. So on average, the Canadian production is sort of now bottom, it's bottom that it's going sideways. So as US demand increases, say 6%, US production is increasing uh, three or 4%. So there, that, therefore there's a void, there's a deficit. And that's where the European imports have, have been a key requirement for the structural business, more imports from the Southern hemisphere, New Zealand, Chile, Brazil, for the non-structural products, that's how it's balancing out, but at very high prices because uh, all the mills have got long order files and this is causing the, uh, the, pen, the pen, <coughs> panic with prices. From Russia's side, we're looking at what's happening. We also have news of a new forestry policy from the side of the, the Russian government or coming actually from the president, which means that uh, what they have, as you, Russ, remember, we discussed it 10 years ago, uh, that uh, there should be an export ban on round locks. Uh, they, instead of making an export ban, they introduced uh, export duties, also combined with quotas, uh, whereas now it is uh, so that both people I've spoken to, like, for instance, the deputy head of the Russian forestry agency, as well as as uh, people who are the largest exporters of round logs uh, in the Far East of Russia, they all say that this time it's serious. Uh, 
So we will see that uh, that six, ten million cubic meters of round logs will actually not end up in China, uh, which will be a, another short-term shock uh, in the beginning of uh, next year, meaning that the Chinese will not be able to cut these logs and they will not need to either have those logs reprocessed within Russia, which is not that easy because it's a short period to increase production, uh, or they need to actually source that lumber from uh, somewhere else. So that's also coming over the next year, if, if you look at uh, the, the, the Russian perspective in relationship to China. Yeah, so more, more supply chaos uh, coming, absolutely. Russ, you mentioned that the US consumption is up 6%. I remember reading somewhere, but and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the U.S. consumes every year around 110 million cubic meters, around 75, which 75 million cubic meters, which it produces domestically, and 35 of which it imports, and 30 of those 35 are from Canada. Is that correct? Yeah, that's almost correct. It's it, the rough numbers are correct. The uh, the imports are somewhere around. Uh, I think three to four million cubic meters and the balance is from Canada, but that's, your math is very good, uh, Amir. <laughs> so then that means we can expect probably an additional six to seven million cubic meters in consumption this year. So it might yeah, think, even reach 115, 117 million yeah, cubic think, meters. Yeah, this year, looking at the U.S. consumption, it's it's uh, there's a lot of uh, I, I've been reading a lot of others other forecasters, and they're they're very mixed. Uh, some some expect uh, housing starts to continue to to increase and repair remodeling increasing, but others are saying no, you're going to see a decrease in housing starts because there's not going to be enough uh, lumber produced because of COVID in the first half of the year. There's going to be not enough truckers to move the wood, not enough you know, rail workers to get the wood on rail cars, not enough uh, builders to build the, the houses. So some are saying it's going to go negative, and yet others think uh, this, this uh, long-term demand to move out of the downtown core of uh, big cities and move into the suburbs and have a, a backyard and a home office is going to be the trend. So um, so the, the, we won't see as high an increase, I don't think, uh, in, in 2021. I think uh, we're going to see repair and remodeling ease off as, as COVID lifts and people start spending their money outside of uh, the home homes and, and so forth. Um, and if the supply chain keeps up or has dislocations, that could uh, limit how much wood's available for, for the market. So I'm anticipating more of a, a maybe a 3 to 4% increase uh, overall for this year. But the first half of the year should be very strong, is what my uh, anticipation is. And the reason I ask is because you mentioned earlier supply chain imbalances. So if the U.S. consumption is going to be around 115 million this year, how much has the total exports fall, total imports from Canada fallen if B.C. is one of the major producing regions and exporters to the U.S.? I read somewhere that it's around 30 percent. Uh, yeah, B BC is around 30 to 40 percent of uh, around 40 percent of Canadian exports to the U.S. and uh, it represents a, a sizable volume. But that it, it was around 55 percent, so it's fallen as its production dropped. So you know the bottom line is that uh, you know the Canadian exports to the U.S. will probably increase somewhat because exports mm -hmm. to other markets will decrease. For example, the returns in selling. Uh, the standard number two grade to, to China versus the U.S., you, you double your money selling into the U.S. So very few uh, mills are going to be selling the number two grade to the, to the China market because the prices are, are just so much better in the U.S. market. And so we're seeing that already where exports are, are easing. And in fact, out of Canada, exports to China have been declining since 2013 year over year, mainly because it was low grade that was being shipped to China, not the high grade. So this is how things balance out, but prices, high prices will always allow supply and demand to balance. That's why we're still forecasting strong prices in 2021 and probably 2022. So on that note, demand is increasing like crazy and supply is very low globally overall. So how long, Martin, do you think that the price will remain high? 
Yeah, we had this discussion actually with, with Russ separately recently, and and in the past when the, the prices were extremely high, last time uh, was in 2007. Then it was, of course, prior to Lehman Brothers. Uh, then it was a uh, actually global economic boom, which meant that there was a lot of demand on all types of product. Uh, what happened uh, now is that some sectors, uh, in particular mills that are producing printing paper as well as newspaper print, uh, both in Finland and Sweden, have closed. Which means that uh, the big pulp producers, they have not actually managed to uh, convert those mills into uh, something else. Uh, and uh, there is an enormous surplus of wood chips uh, in Sweden now with big mills, including, for instance, Vida, which was like, you know, uh, bought by Canfor, a company producing one and a half million cubic meters uh, per year. Now the private mills, which means that in case it's not the vertically integrated forestry company like SEA or Holman or others, they got problems with uh, actually uh, shipping off the, the wood chips. And why do I say this? I say this because in the past, as soon as prices were high, uh, the mills were uh, cutting uh, the market to death, more or less adding three shifts, increasing the prices of, uh, of sawlogs that they source from the private owners of forests. Uh, and hence this additional uh, supply turn up being countries like Sweden and others, they increased production by easily 20 to 30%, uh, which was enough. This is harder now um, because the private forest owner, yeah, he can get paid for the saw logs, but he will actually have an issue to uh, get rid of the pulp logs. And we should remember that in case you cut 10,000 cubic meters in your forest, uh, further down the chain, actually half or a bit more than half uh, has been converted uh, from the forest to either pulp logs uh, or wood chips. But I don't know, uh, Russ, if this is uh, a global problem or if it's more a Scandinavian issue, but uh, this is anyhow what we see in, in Sweden, where I'm located now, uh, as the reason for the sawmills not increasing production, even if the prices are very high. Yeah, I think it is a bit. It, it is a bit more regional, but certainly I know in, in Finland, for example, they've had a, a problem with chip prices and uh, and, and sawdust prices, uh, you know, for other reasons. But uh, they they've been, you know, they've been the economics of sawmilling in, in Finland is tough with that happening, and also uh, say in eastern Canada, we've seen uh, a lot of newsprint mills close, very old, high cost newsprint mills close. So. Uh, mills there don't have an outlet for their chips. So that's another constraint uh, in, you know, the other half of Canada where there's not a lot of options uh, to increase uh, sawmill production if you can't get rid of your chips. Other parts of North America uh, have seen some, some newsprint mill closures, but not as concentrated as in Eastern Canada. So we are seeing this, uh, you know, this, uh, you can't, you can't increase uh, sawmill production if you, if you can't uh, deal with things like wood chips and getting revenue there. So it's, uh, it is regional though, for sure. Uh, Russ, we read about the uh, one, uh, 1,900 uh, or 1. 1.9 trillion uh, stim uh, stimuli, uh, which is being discussed in the US. Uh, is that expected to, to affect positively on, on demand or is this just $2,000 handed out to the population in, in general that will, will have no connection with uh, with housing or how does that uh, look in your view yeah it, it, it's a it's a it's a delicate balance but certainly the more the government wants to pour into the economy it keeps the economy afloat it keeps people uh, spending and and some of that does trickle down to people that uh, do own homes and and maybe have, have lost their jobs so uh, as they get money and they have no no way to spend it they will continue to keep spending it on home improvements to some degree to build up equity and use their time up. So that's sort of a, the, the positive that will continue as it did in 2020. Uh, that's, that was one of the reasons uh, we had a big pickup in, in repair and remodeling work that that should continue in, in, uh, in, in 2021 in the US. But the other thing, just coming back to the topic of, of, of wood chips and outflows, you know, uh, that's one of the handicaps for mills that can't uh, expand or increase the production, but also trying to find skilled workers all around the world it seems to be a problem um, in uh, in the U.S. And in, and in Canada and in Europe. I'm hearing over and over again 
there's just not enough skilled workers uh, to get uh, to allow mills to increase production, add shifts, and so forth. And even with record level uh, product or record level prices, we have not seen uh, a lot of uh, announcements of mills adding shifts uh, at all. So that's another constraint to uh, production increases. And so if demand keeps growing, you know, in in uh, let's say in North America or in Europe where things are very active, you know, where's the supply going to come from? And that's why higher prices are being forecast. So just coming back to that topic. And on that topic, I'd like to ask, in general, there is a trend in value adding your goods, not selling rough stone and some, in some cases not even planed because a lot of focus is going towards CLT. How, how do you think this trend is expected to continue developing and how much will actually be available to these low price markets like China, India, and the Middle East? So actually in North America, the value added business doesn't get a lot of attention. It, the, it's the commodity structural business that's, that's the dominant uh, you know, play, you know, probably you know, 75 to 80% of production is, is structural dimension lumber. We build most of our homes out of wood and that's the bulk of the wood that uh, it's, it's utilized. And so value-added production is is a uh, is sort of uh, there's no, very few big companies that do that, and very, there's almost hardly any large sawmill companies that do a lot of value-added. They focus on commodities, so the the, the re- their value-added business is a lot of uh, independent companies and a few big ones, but mainly small ones. And you know lately the focus has been on CLT. There's been a as or, as in Europe, it's now expanding fast into, into North America. And so that's going to see some, some long-term growth in that uh, business. That's also increasing demand um, for wood. They, they figure, uh, you know, another five to six billion board feet or, or 10 million cubic meters of, of uh, CLT production over the next uh, 10 years. So that's going to also increase the demand for wood. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of uh, low low priced wood, I think at some point uh, these these uh, export markets like Middle East, North Africa, China, uh, there's not going to be a lot of low priced wood around anymore. If 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 the demand for you know structural wood in, in high priced markets or the value added companies still need raw materials, there's going to be a a, a long term sort of erosion, I think, of supply going to those markets, which tells me that they're going to have to start paying a lot more money because at some point it's going to run out. And then as a, as a producer, I mean, we see that the companies in Sweden uh, in the Baltic states are then uh, actually realizing that there will be a higher premium on uh, uh, exact lengths, uh, studs uh, that are uh, specially cut uh, prior to shipment, meaning that the 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 house will arrive more or less in a container uh, to be picked together, or the main uh, then uh, things will be distributed uh, just to be uh, installed. So it's then to get over the hurdle with uh, with labor. So is that kind of what we should expect will happen? Being that lack of labor will mean that more exact lengths are uh, then being uh, cut not in relation to what is standard structure, but in relation actually to what the, what the uh, construction company will order. Will we get that far, you think? Yeah, I, I, I think that more and more of the, uh, of the business is going to be uh, companies figuring out the supply chain, figuring out where they fit, and then adding value you know, to, to you know, where they can meet, get a supply chain uh, with the end user. I think we'll see more of that sort of value to call, call value added lengths or, or value added sizes or value added grades uh, with, with some of the with some of the operations. You know, in North America, it's a lot more of a commodity business. I I don't see very many mills uh, doing that, but I do I do that's the European model. I think a lot more Europeans uh, are much more focused on the end customer and they have the flexibility with production as well. That's the other thing about North American mills; they are not flexible. They're all designed for making uh, structural dimension lumber and they, their size, their ability to make other sizes is limited. And so only mills that are sort of, um, the few mills that are flexible will do that sort of thing, but the majority are locked into the US market. And that's why we don't see a lot of uh, value added products being produced out of, out of the uh, value added lumber products being produced out of the mills. 
they just don't have the right uh, uh, sizes to, to work with, and therefore they uh, they sell it on to other companies that figure it out. I fully agree. Martin, with consolidation happening in the industry over the past decades, a lot of companies are diversifying their product lines and value adding. In the coming decade, do you think we can expect more consolidation? I would like to say that, yes, I think even many countries can expect more consolidation, especially in a country like Russia, where the where the largest player in the in the country is uh, actually not uh, extremely uh, big, say 1.2 million cubic meters uh, per year in total. But uh, in case you speak about uh, value adding, I think the, the factor which we should mention, which is very interesting, is uh, actually the, the recent decision on uh, anti-dumping uh, regarding uh, panels and other wood products uh, coming to the US from China. Uh, so as far as I understood, this is already on top of the uh, already existing import duty uh, of furniture and similar products from China, 25%. Correct me if I'm wrong, Russ. Uh, and where the salaries then in China actually are increasing, the average salary of a truck driver outside of uh, Shanghai is actually now uh, already $1,000. It was $350, $400 uh, 10, 15 years ago. So uh, I think that uh, if the driver of consumption is the U.S., uh, where one should look at uh, actually adding value is uh, molding or planing uh, goods that have been sent uh, to the U.S. in the past, but was produced in China uh, out of raw material that came either from Canada, Sweden, or Russia. So I think it would be reasonable to see that Swedes as well as Russian companies perhaps backed up with uh, firms in, in the Baltics, will increase production of other type of high value products to the US, such as, for instance, decking and uh, like I said, uh, different types of panels. That's not a structural product, it will be harder to launch the cell, but uh, I see that as a, as a window of, uh, of, I think, opportunity the next two to five years. Martin, me and you have discussed the emissions related to shipping products across the world and back. Yeah, looking at, uh, looking at the question of, of emissions, uh, I think the best example is what I discussed and held with a, with a producer of, of solid wooden furniture to one of the big uh, chains. And uh, then the question is actually such that they claim that they of course control emissions, but uh, they, in my view, do not control emissions, which means that someone who has bought wood in uh, near the border to uh, Lithuania from Belarus uh, and is reprocessing it, uh, he's being then compared, compared on a unit price for this shelf, uh, for instance, uh, with a supplier, uh, for instance, in Vietnam or in China, who has uh, first imported the wood himself from, for instance, Russia or from Sweden, and then sends it all the way back. Uh, so I have the opinion that uh, in case uh, the price is equal, uh, yes, uh, then they might take the producer who is nearby, but uh, actually the value of, uh, of the emissions that could have been saved is not being included, uh, being that the factory producer in, uh, in Lithuania of these shelves, he does not get uh, 5% more uh, pay because we have avoided transporting uh, uh, the raw materials around the world uh, or the earth, uh, so to speak. Uh, and that will come. Moving forward, I think there's gonna be a, uh, a demand for, for low emission products uh, made more locally versus high emission products and the fact that a lot of uh, companies have to pay a carbon tax. I know in, in here in British Columbia, our industries uh, pay a carbon tax. The companies are more aware of this as an emerging factor about how do they lower their carbon footprint and uh, also lower their carbon tax as well. So that's a new uh, factor, I think, that we're going to be watching more and more. 
And on the topic of trade flows, how do you think the exports from Scandinavia and Russia to, for example, China, the Middle East, and Central Europe will be affected this year due to the increase of US timber prices? In the past, when you spoke to Swedish mills, uh, you've always seen that the US has been the most volatile uh, market, being Scandinavian sawmills that have sold against the DIY chains uh, in Europe, uh, knowing that they get a fixed price, uh, which doesn't change over the year, and only a smaller volume, uh, perhaps 10-15% of production, uh, has then been sold spot, for instance, to, to China or, say, to the, the Middle East. Uh, and every time the, the price in the U.S. were high, uh, people or some mills sent over goods, even as, uh, as, as uh, late or as recently as uh, during, the, uh, during last year. And once it arrived, it turned out that the prices had fallen. So actually, I think that uh, the producers, neither in Russia nor, nor in Sweden, have realized that this, uh, which I think, and I also listen to Russ, this will be a, uh, a strong demand for a longer period of time. So of course, with a price premium, uh, mills will uh, adjust and, and uh, actually the European DIY uh, will have to pay an extra because they will be put against uh, in negotiations, the alternative of uh, some of the big uh, giants in the US wanting to have the Swedish mill to uh, provide the same volume uh, in such a structured uh, way. And I would echo your comments, uh, Martin. I mean, my my experience in talking with the European mills is uh, they got burnt badly in the U.S. market in 2005, 2006, as the market uh, started to collapse. You know, when prices are high, everyone makes money and, and there's no risk, but the market's very volatile. And the last uh, couple of couple of uh, months, I mean, we, we've seen you know prices increasing you know uh, up to seven eight percent in a single week, and going down eight to ten percent in a single week, and week over week over week in both cases, unprecedented volatility. So I know that a lot of European companies have been uh, afraid of uh, getting into that uh, uncertainty and volatile prices. But end, but end consumers, uh, say large construction companies uh, and not only traders, uh, the problem with the US market has been that uh, it's been, like you said, actually a, uh, a financial product uh, where it should be a commodity which is closer to uh, actually agricultural. It's in your opinion true, Russ, that uh, now uh, larger uh, consumers are willing to sign six months contracts, 12 months contracts, uh, and perhaps, of course, hedge it with a financial instrument, uh, since that is nothing uh, that was possible in the past, uh, but seems to have actually gotten closer to reality uh, today. Yeah, that's a great question. I know that there is some movement afoot where some of the larger companies are trying to look beyond the uh, auction market, you know, of uh, what's the price uh, this minute, which is the way the, the business works here in North America. The, uh, there are some uh, companies trying to work out ways to get perhaps uh, short-term contracts for, for a month. That would be a huge, huge change and even for a quarter because uh, they know that it works both ways that, uh, you know, having stability and knowing buyers knowing what price they can expect and, and to, sell it forward and contractors can then also uh, know the price as well. That's very advantageous, but it's still, it's still very much an auction market. And uh, this last um, year has, has shown just how volatile it can be. And it's not good for the, for the, you know, going up, everyone's happy, but going down, everyone's losing. There's losers and, and some companies uh, can get, get wiped out in a down market. So that's got to change at some point. And there is some, movement towards ways to kind of stabilize the market in a better way. And there are some financial instruments like lumber futures you can use, but even that's volatile. So uh, I think that's coming, but that's still probably uh, a number of years away before we'll see more stability. 
Martin, you mentioned previously that when the log export ban comes into effect between Russia and China, that there will be a supply shock, correct? Yeah, there will be a uh, there will be a situation when the, the the current log exporters have not had enough time to install uh, additional equipment to cut uh, these, mm-hmm. in particular, then uh, actually low uh, low damage logs. Because in case they have a sawmill already functioning, of course, then they will prioritize uh, the the logs of large diameters because uh, they need to get out the maximum volume. Uh, of the number of pieces that can be put through that uh, line uh, per day. Uh, but the other thing that also is uh, being added is what we uh, expect. It is not yet the law, just like the export ban. It's a confirmed rumor from very high level that it will also be an export duty uh, on uh, undried green uh, lumber from Russia going to China. Uh, this has been a way for the Chinese, uh, like we know, to actually avoid the existing log quotas and uh, export duties uh, on round logs. Uh, but now actually to uh, collect some money to the state coffers, as well as to create more jobs uh, and motivate construction of drying kilns, uh, there will also be a, a gradually increasing uh, export duty on uh, Greenwood also starting from the 1st of January uh, 2022, being in 11 months and a couple of days. Martin, you mentioned previously that there is an expected supply shock to trade flows between Russia and China next year when the log export ban comes into effect. But what sort of volumes are we speaking about here? How much is produced and how much is actually exported in both timber and logs from Russia? As of today, we speak about uh, then lumber. Uh, Russia is producing around 28 million cubic meters for all uh, different internal exports, uh, uses and all markets. And uh, last year, the exports of Thornwood uh, lumber was approximately 10 and a half, 11 million uh, cubic meters, uh, out of which, in my opinion, these uh, export data are not specifying actually if, the, if, the, if this was green or dried, but I know that it's not more, much more than half uh, of what is exported to China in terms of lumber that actually is, is dried. And uh, the reason for that is, of course, that uh, that uh, many receivers in China are not construction companies, they're actually furniture factories. So they might even prefer to cut their own dimensions uh, for a certain type of shelves. It might be 19 millimeters time, uh, 84 millimeters, uh, and then right down to uh, furniture, humidity, uh, eight, 10% upon arrival. Uh, but the shock is related more or less uh, to the log uh, export ban, which we then can put in uh, in perspective to the 10, 11 million cubic meters uh, that are exported in lumber. And looking at logs, it's roughly uh, 8 million cubic meters in uh, all species that were exported uh, last year, according to uh, official uh, data. And since the receiver is a furniture factory, this Russ knows who's been to all the, uh, the big ports, what do they do? Yes, they take a, a six meter or uh, 20 feet uh, log, they cut it into two or three pieces to maximize recovery. Uh, and then they uh, actually use as much of this expensive uh, log as possible. And when I say expensive log, uh, it means that a quickly grown radiata pine log in the port of Shanghai now uh, costs uh, Russ, I guess, $140 uh, already or how much? Yep, that's about right. And uh, with recovery then being 60, 65% of production, we have that uh, these 8 million cubic meters uh, of round logs that came into China last year, they were actually turned into uh, approximately uh, even uh, 5 million, uh, 5.5 million cubic meters of lumber going somewhere that now needs to be replaced. Replace how? Yeah, replaced either in increasing the, the, the production in Russia uh, in the Far East where the logs came from, which means adding shifts, 
rebuilding the mills and uh, putting in some quickly available secondhand equipment. Uh, either actually, uh, which we will see uh, part of that, uh, perhaps a third, perhaps a half, it's hard to say, uh, will not come from Russia, it needs to come from someone else. So the deficit uh, out of those 8 million cubic meters of logs that will not go in, and part of which will not be reprocessed within Russia, should still mean that uh, there are 2-3 uh, million cubic meters of lumber missing uh, from those Russian logs. At the same time, actually, as of course, consumption in China also is increasing, both in construction as well as in furniture uh, demand for the domestic market. If you look at the, the China log market, uh, if, if there's a deficit now of, of up to 8 million cubic meters coming from Russia, we also have you know a, a log export ban temporarily from Australia. That's another almost 5 million cubic meters. Now, that won't last you know, I don't know how long that's going to last, but that's currently that's in play and, you know, it's going to be going for a while. I mean, the other uh, issue too is, you know, uh, Canada and China have this uh, standoff with the, the Huawei um, uh, executive that we've detained on behalf of the Americans and there's threats that they may find some, some bugs in our wood too and that could be a negative uh, factor coming in. So there's a, a possible deficit of, you know, uh, 13, maybe even 15 million cubic meters of logs this year, you know, or next year, I guess, we say if it all happened next year, but certainly the 8 million from Russia are the majority of it. And that sort of, and then who can supply more logs to China? Well, okay, New Zealand can, and, and they have the capacity and they, they can probably make up some of the deficit. Uh, Central European log exports, yes, lots of beetle wood, constraints with containers, and higher price containers and some ships coming, but they can probably step it up a little bit. We have, you know, Uruguay at high prices, they can bring in loads, but um, the log supply is probably gonna get crimped in, into China, either uh, in say in 2022, if everything holds. And that means there's gonna be, to make, make up the, the deficit, like in the US, you have to import more sawnwood, more lumber. And uh, I think that's gonna be a benefit to the uh, lumber exporters, which will finally, possibly drive up the price because uh, there's a supply and demand imbalance. And the only way to get more supply is to increase the price. So I thought I'd throw that back at you, Martin. What do you think about that hypothesis? Yeah, how it hits back to, to price. It is something we have seen. The, the, the stocks of lumber in Chinese ports have fallen uh, by 60, 70%, usually in the ports around Shanghai, it should be 1.5 million cubic meters. Now it's not more than uh, perhaps 500 uh, when thousand cubic meters. When you tell this to the Chinese, they say, yeah, but you know, now we have uh, holidays, Chinese New Year in, in, uh, in two weeks on the 12th of uh, February, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, some mills uh, actually have closed furniture factories and so on, but this they use more as an argument uh, for uh, us as producers not to raise the price more than we have done. And uh, what does this mean? It means that uh, the current prices in Shanghai now are about $300, 305, 315 uh, approximately. Uh, and uh, the lowest price uh, or the same customer, he got the goods for 200 and 230 uh, then uh, approximately one year ago. So prices are up 40 to 50% and they do still not get the volumes. So Chinese buy uh, always from the market where there is the most rational relationship in between uh, quality and price. And in case they do not get volume, yes, then they will, uh, of course, uh, have to uh, adopt, just like uh, a lot of the MENA markets. And uh, what happens then? Well, in China, I don't think consumption will decrease because the prices are high, uh, per se. Uh, this they can pass on to their domestic market uh, as such. And... As a short joke, when you see a very high quality uh, piece of furniture in China at the factory uh, and you ask uh, what a piece, yes, that's for domestic markets. Foreigners cannot afford that, the Chinese are, are saying. Uh, but in case consumption will fall on high prices in uh, other markets, 
uh, like for instance, uh, the Middle East and North Africa, uh, there I think consumption actually will be hit uh, in my view. And I've actually read something similar about the US for every $50 increase in price, a hundred thousand families cannot afford a home simply because there goes so much lumber into a new single family home. Uh, Russ, yes. do you ha have you heard something similar before? Yes, I've seen that published. Uh, it's uh, is that is true? Probably, uh, no, it's not. It's a, it's a calculation uh, more than anything else. I mean, so the, the the argument is the cost of a home has increased, say, fifteen thousand uh, dollars in the last year because of high uh, lumber prices, high panel prices, that sort of thing, and and that's true. But um, you know. You know, it's 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 a, it's a it's a temporary thing, but it doesn't mean you can't afford a home. It just means you can't afford that fancy kitchen counter or that deluxe uh, uh, bathroom or or something. You have to delay something and like maybe don't do your outdoor uh, outdoor decking until a couple of years later. That's that's all it means. But it's an argument by some of the lobbyists in the U.S. to they're pushing the government to reduce the, the tariffs actually on U.S. Uh, on the U.S. duties that apply to Canada, something we haven't talked about. But the up up the last 18 months, uh, Canadian mills paid a, a 20% uh, import duty on shipments to the U.S. market, and so in high-priced lumber, that was huge. And uh, more recently, in, in late November, that dropped down to 9%. But they're arguing that's that's part of the problem that's pushed up prices, but. With the recent spike in prices, it's more the uh, lumber market prices that have push the affordability question, not so much the duties. So this this gets tossed around back and forth, unfortunately, uh, a few times. But uh, it's it, it's a negative impact on housing prices, yes, for new buyers. But it's just a calculation. Did you say that the price increased because of a lower tariff? Wouldn't it be the other way around? Well, the the, the tariff should have dropped the prices, but yeah. you know, in November they would have dropped. The, well, they would have dropped the taxes to the uh, Canadian companies, but demand was so strong and had zero impact on the market price in the U.S. In other words, the, the Canadian companies got to keep the, uh, the the reduction in the duties because mm. of the strong demand. That 11% or so. Exactly. That was reduced. Okay. I've always argued that the industry should try to find an equilibrium where there is not so much price volatility, especially with these spot markets. Where the where the supply and demand can hopefully find harmony, one day. Martin, do you think uh, the Middle East or China will ever work in a similar way as maybe the uh, maybe not the U.S. but uh, Europe with quarterly contracts? China, per se, has a uh, has in many cases actually quarterly contracts in the sense that uh, that's the time of delivery uh, when they make an order at the factory uh, in a market like this uh, they're actually making prepayments uh, mm -hmm. even at existing uh, volume and that is to secure uh, the wood uh, as, uh, as such uh, and uh, the issue with the Arab, uh, the Arab markets especially Egypt is of course that that uh, this is a market definitely for uh, the type of wood that uh, that cannot be uh, planed uh, due to weighing, due to uh, loose knots uh, and something else. So what I think will happen is that we will have a larger uh, difference of price in between grades, actually. Mm. Uh, that uh, the, the, the grade uh, difference which we have seen in the past, which which has been quite standard, both from Sweden and from uh, from Russia uh, to those markets, just like it is uh, to China, uh, might actually get a bit wider. That's what I think will uh, will happen because uh, for a Swedish seventh uh, grade or a Russian so-called domestic grade, where you have vein, it's not nothing actually can uh, plane into. Uh, furniture you cannot uh, use it 
uh, even in, in, in bearing constructions uh, some, sometime. Uh, this will not be used uh, locally in Sweden or in the US or in, in China. It needs to go to someone who has a very low uh, demand on quality. So my guess is rather that we will see a, a wider spread. Leading us to our last question, gentlemen. Exports and business in our industry have traditionally been based on relationships, but with lower language barriers as new generations learn English, the emergence of smart tools and a new generation of executives entering the market, do you think that technology can help the market become more efficient? And if so, how? I think we can start with the US example and uh, the main reason why, uh, for instance, one by four, one by three, one by six have not been planed and sold to the US. And I use those sideboards as an example because they don't need to be certified uh, because it's not a bearing uh, structure. The reason they have not been uh, produced uh, in Russia and Sweden and Finland is that uh, most mills have actually not known which are the exact uh, planed uh, dimensions and the exact uh, US lengths also in millimeters. Uh, at the same time as the receiver has not uh, received full transparency of where are the goods and who are they working against. So a tool uh, like uh, Timber Exchange uh, that I've seen and sent to source uh, has developed is, uh, is actually something that can break this barrier uh, because the reason uh, that there is uh, an arbitrage or an extreme price difference uh, uh, in lumber uh, in between Europe and the US, but not in coal and not in oil, is of course that... Uh, Oil, or oil is measured in uh, barrels, both in the US and in Europe, and sulfur contents uh, and other factors, whereas the comparison with uh, dollars per thousand board feet plus different dimensions plus different lengths uh, makes it actually too complicated uh, for many mills uh, to enter. So I think that uh, the tool, uh, Timber Exchange, including all this information actually helps to remove the trade barrier and uh, actually helps to move more lumber to the US. And of course, will give the American and consumers a uh, better uh, price and more uh, also price stability. And Martin, I know that a lot of sawmills have avoided smaller shipments of just a few containers to small industrial buyers, simply because you don't want to have hundreds of small shipments every month. But if the paperwork is automatic and you get an average higher price of five, 10%, is that something you think sawmills would be interested in trying at least or pursuing? Is that a new way of working? I think that uh, time in sales should be spent actually speaking to then consumer. Uh, and not correcting uh, wrongfully issued uh, documents. And of course, uh, having uh, X work hours uh, for a sales uh, individual uh, and uh, getting full assistance, uh, they will be able to increase prices by actually splitting up the volume to, to actually the receiver who has uh, demand for that precise dimension. Uh, so that I fully support. Mm -hmm. Russ? I, I can comment that, uh, you know, I think with more demand for products produced outside of uh, North America, uh, some of the American uh, companies that I talk to, whether it's a, a distributor or an importer, um, they, uh, the, the idea of having simple tools that make a common exchange of information uh, with the, between the buyer and the seller will certainly uh, accelerate the, uh, the, the volume of, of business done. Because in, in the early days, I know that uh, the U.S. distributors wanted to buy directly from European mills, but they, there was language barriers. There was, there was technical details about the, about the size, about the, um, you know, the, the, the volume, about, even about where's the price based on. And over time, a lot of that's been sorted out and having a, a more of a, a electronic tool that could uh, 
simplify things, you know, like I know looking at timber exchanges, that would that will enhance things because uh, it, it, what people are looking for is sort of a one-stop shop, I think, that makes it simple uh, with, with language from, from origin to destination. And I think that's what's been missing. And uh, those that uh, have the, uh, the infrastructure and the, the extra staff have gone after it themselves, but other companies are, are right for the pickings once there's uh, an easier option. So I think that's a very positive thing. And that's the thing. I worked for over a decade in timber export myself and worked with sawmills of all sizes and with importers uh, all the way from the US in the West to China and Taiwan in the East. And one thing that surprised me is that regardless of size, everyone works in the same exact inefficient ways. And that's actually how my journey started. I wanted to find a way that was a tool that, was, that would help me in my business, in, my, in managing my supply chain, but it just wasn't available. And I was just flabbergasted that the whole industry had accepted that this is the way to work, there isn't a better way, and likely never will be. And I thought to myself that it is actually possible to build and actually just mapped out what is it that you actually need? You need help in the documentation, in the tracking, sharing and collecting updates and analytics of how your business is performing. And that was the first layer or the foundation which we started building. And even now, despite the new generation, there still exists language barriers in uh, China and the Middle East and you know in Russia. And when every side can see the deal in their own native language, when they can negotiate directly with each other, increase the volume, decrease the volume, and it just makes it so much easier. So I really believe that this is just the first steps that we're seeing of the industry being digitized. I've uh, had a few discussions with uh, some North American companies and it sounds like the very big companies uh, have used some very high priced, uh, you know, software, uh, you know, total systems to make, make things work. But for the average operator who wants to be either in the export business or in the import business, uh, the options are few and far between. And I still hear of... Uh, their uh, documentation department is still having many, many bodies uh, that, and that hasn't changed over time. So there's still uh, a high cost if you want to be in that part of the business because you're not efficient. So something like a, like a timber exchange uh, through center source would be something that makes a lot of sense uh, for the average you know, medium-sized company. So that's, there's an opportunity there for sure. Because I would argue that Everyone knows that the production lines are automated. Inventory management in most cases is very clear and organized, but the poor people in the export department and in the logistics department, they don't get to work in the same automated fashion as their colleagues. Uh, but it's that department that is bringing in the money. So logically, shouldn't they be the ones that are the most efficient? in fact. And they have been sort of forgotten and pushed to the sidelines. And all, all the focus has been on, let's improve the economics of the production, let's lower the cost, all these things. But when actually, maybe it would have just been easier, cheaper and quicker to improve the profitability and the economics of the enterprise by focusing on the department that is actually bringing in the money and focusing on the logistics because that's where the greatest efficiencies today are at least. Martin, would you say that the greatest efficiency today lies in the export and logistics or in the production still, despite the focus over the past decades that, uh, that has been there? I mean, in the changing market uh, that perhaps today where we see prices being or of, of such a premium, uh, which means that uh, uh, what someone can buy uh, in a DIY store in, in the UK, because this wood was bought on, on low prices at, at the end of 
last year or a contract signed half year ago, uh, actually in the DIY in the US, they need to pay almost twice as much. So I think that this tool uh, that has been developed can assist in actually jumping over to the highest paying market and remove parts of the barrier. And yes, of course, uh, money talks. Gentlemen, it's been a sincere pleasure to speak with you today and get your thoughts on how the industry is performing and what we might expect in the future. Thank you very much indeed. And look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Amir. Thank you, Martin, too. All the best, Russ. Thank you for listening to another episode of Timber and Technology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. Or subscribe on our website at www.timber.exchange podcast. We'll see you next time.